that's what we love. It's a glorious, glorious reality. So consider the claims of Christ. We are in the book of 1 Peter. Today we'll be in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. Hear the word of the Lord. So, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow up to salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So my thesis this morning is this, it is all a matter of tasting, of savoring, of knowing. In this passage, Peter says, as you continue to taste and see the goodness, the benevolence, the kindness of the Lord, then you will earnestly love, and as you earnestly love, you will strip away attitudes that will limit or even kill community or friendships or marriages. And as you continually taste and see the goodness of the Lord, you will understand that you are a living stone. And as a living stone, you're called to be part of a holy edifice to offer spiritual sacrifices to God in the name of Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is a matter of tasting. He says, Taste, since you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, you've seen the kindness of the Lord. So last week we were in chapter 1, verse 22, and Peter makes this incredible statement. He says, having purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. I mean, passionately. Be a forgiving, gracious, fervent lover from the heart. If you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. And so the immediate question you might ask is this, how in the world can I fervently love one another from the heart? And then he talks about the word and it's not perishable seed. And, and he comes to chapter 2, verse 1, therefore, or so, so, strip away or get rid of, and he mentions five things. So, so, so the answer, listen, the, how do we love each other fervently? In the text, we love each other fervently by tasting the goodness of the Lord. And as we taste the goodness of the Lord, we continuously get rid of certain things that limit my walk with the Lord, my friendships, my community building. Now, it says, therefore, 
strip away. One version says, therefore, lay aside. And I don't, to me, stripping away is, is an act of really violence. You, you get rid of it. Lay aside doesn't get it for me. Lay aside, in my mind, is you come in, it's, it's a cold day, you come into your house, the house is nice and warm. You take off your overcoat and you lay it aside and hang it in the closet. You lay it aside, you take it off and hang it up. Or if you're a basketball player and you have a, a, a sweats and you're warming up, after you're warm and you're ready to play the game, you take off your nice sweats and you give them to the equipment manager. You are laying them aside. The word here means strip away. Let me give an example. When I was 22, uh, I've been raised in North Carolina, didn't really understand fire ants, even though I went to Citadel, had not been exposed to fire ants. Now I know that fire ants was one of the downsides of living in Charleston, South Carolina. We have fire ants everywhere. So anyway. Never been exposed to them. I go to Singapore. I'm 22. First time I've ever been on an airplane. I go, I go there. I'm going to be there two years coaching basketball, doing youth work. Uh, I get there on a Tuesday. It's the first Saturday, and I'm just blown away. I'm living with a wonderful missionary family. The city is wonderful. The reception has been very kind, unknown to me. The next week, I was going to meet the woman to whom I will be married, God willing, the rest of my life. She was 16. So I was 22. It's not great, but it's what happened. And my son, my son, who's, who's really can embellish things, tells people she was seven. She was not seven. She was 16, okay? <laughs> so anyway, we got, years later, we got married. Anyway, so we, we, we're going to be married, and it was a wonderful experience. But I, I, my first Saturday night there, I go for a walk. There's the market. You hear all the noises, the high rises, and, and I'm walking down this beautiful street where this missionary family lives, and, and I'm just captivated by the goodness of God, and I'm praying. So I sit down under a beautiful tree to pray. Looked up in the starry night. I began just thanking the Lord, and I feel something bite me here. And something bite me here and here and in my ankles. And I mean, it just, I, I jump up, and I had, I had plopped down in a fire ant mound. And they're biting me. All of them, I mean, they're, really, they're, they're biting me. And I'm going, good grief. And so I, I'm about 40 yards from the house, 50 yards from the shower maybe. So I charge into the house with all of my might. I run into the shower, I turn on the water, and I strip off my clothes. And I start killing these fire ants and saying, man, i got to get rid of these things. I'm, I'm stripping them off. And uh, so if you're a visual learner, just stop there. Don't, don't go any further. Uh, I was 22 and very buff at that time, so you can, you can go there. So anyway, so that, that, that's what the word, it means to just strip it off. It doesn't mean, oh, forsooth, ants are biting my feet. I'm going to roll up my sock and lay it aside. I'll answer biting my back. I'm going to take off my T-shirt and lay. No, no, no. You strip it off. And, and, and Peter says here, since you've tasted it, the Lord is good. Get rid of, lay aside, strip off these things. And, and he mentions five qualities. And as I meditate on this and thought about it really for a long time, these qualities, apart from the very first word, which means general wickedness, so the four things that follow malice, which is general wickedness, are really pedestrian, boring, everyday sins. But they destroy families. They destroy communities. He says, get rid of malice, which means general wickedness. Get rid of malice and guile. Guile is deceitful trickery. 
is taking advantage of people through underhanded methods. The same word is used in saying what Jesus did not do in chapter 2, verse 22, when it says this, when he was, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. He was a truth speaker. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. So, so you, you get rid of guile or deceit. Next, hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is pretense or play acting. It is create a public persona that is not in keeping with who you really are. It's trying to make a good impression by being a falsely living person. So just don't be a, a hypocrite. Next, you say, the same word, that word is used in 1 Timothy 4 too, for example, where Paul talks about people who says they're, they, they're, they're the hypocrisy of liars whose consciences are seared as with a white iron, hot iron. See, the, the problem with this, in part, is that when you play act long enough and lie and deceive and walk and deceive long enough, sometimes you really begin to think you are what you say you are. And he says here, their, 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 their hypocrisy is so deep that they are liars whose consciences are seared. Then he says, get, get rid of envy, which is just jealousy, garden variety je jealousy, and slander which is speaking ill of another, to run down their character or to disparage them, to make yourself look good. Psalm 15 is a psalm that says, who may stand in the presence of the living God? And this passage is quoted later in 1 Peter, but it says this, chapter 15, verse 2, he, he, who's, he, who's walk, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks the truth in his heart. So he's a truth speaker. We're called to be truth speakers. Next, he does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor. He does not take up a reproach against his friend. He protects people by his language and his demeanor. Verse 4, in whose eyes a vile person is despised but honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change. He's a person of holiness. He's a holy person. He's a godly person. One version says he tells the truth even when it's not to his advantage. Verse 5 of chapter, Psalm 15, he does not put out his money at excessive interest and he does not take a bribe against the innocent. He, does, he who does these things shall never be moved. In other words, he's a, he's a person of justice. So, so instead of being a slanderer, he's a person of, of, that speaks and protects people. He protects people with his language. He's a person of holiness that's observed and he's a person of, of justice. And once again, I, these, are, these are not sins that are above the fold of the front page of the newspaper. That's next week. Next week we talk about the incredible licentiousness of Asia Minor this time. But, but th this week, these are just common sins that destroy families, destroy friendships, and communities. Malice, guile, hypocrisy, envy, slander. In Proverbs 6, another list is given. It says there are seven things, or six things the Lord hates. Seven are an abomination to Him. And I think, man, I want to know what's an abomination to the living God. And this is what the writer of Proverbs says, the seven things are. Number one, uh, haughty eyes or pride. A lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked things, 
feet that run to evil. Uh, someone who breathes out lies. And number seven, uh, the man who sows discord among the brothers. And of the, of the seven, listen, of the seven, only one is above the fold of the newspaper. One out of seven hands that shed innocent blood. The rest are garden variety, everyday things that we deal with. So, so, so I ask you, are you tasting the goodness of the Lord in such a way that you're stripping yourself of these things, brothers and sisters? That, that you're, you're, you're getting rid of these things. So this is what I, what I wrote down as I, I thought about this. The sins that we usually deal with from week to week will be boring, tedious sins which destroy Reputations destroy friendships, sap our energy, and limit our usefulness. This week I met with a, a man who uh, has been through a very hard time. And he fell into disobedience. He, he's come back. He's, he's a dear person. And, and he said to me, he said, you know, I've been going to church here a long time. He said, I've heard you say something scores of time, and I'm going to ask you to never stop saying it. I said, what's that? He said, we are one dumb decision away from blowing it. He said, that's me. I went through all a bunch of safety barriers, and I did some dumb things. And, and he's come back. He's repented. But, but, but see, the, the truth is, I need to see the beauty of Christ. I need to taste the beauty of Christ. I, I need to, to understand His goodness. And as I do that, then I can, I, I can earnestly love it. I can strip these things off of me. In Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul is talking about this issue. And he says, starting in verse 20, uh, he says, uh, but, but, but this is not the way you learn Christ and the futility of your thinking. Assuming you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off the old self, to strip it off, which belongs to you, to your former manner of life and, and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. It's a matter of tasting and seeing the goodness of the Lord. It's a matter of, of having a heart that, that sorrows over the sin around us and in my life. Shorter Catechism, question 87, says, what is repentance unto life? Answer, it is a saving grace when a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and understanding the mercy of God in Christ, grieves for and hates his sin and turns from it. See that? He, he sees the, the destitute nature of sin and the beauty of Christ, and he turns and he runs to the cross. He goes on and says that it is an abiding principle in the life of a Christian, that it is a permanent grace, it's an habitual frame of mind. And just let me ask you this. Hear me. Am I, are you a repenting person? Malice, guile, hypocrisy, envy, and slander, haughty eyes, lying tongue. Heart that devises evil things, feet that are quick to run to evil on the internet or anywhere else. Someone who sows discord among the brothers or just lies. Am I, are you, a repenting 
person. Uh, am I tasting the goodness of the Lord so that I long for the pure spiritual milk? Now, in the Bible, milk sometimes refers to immaturity. But in this case, it talks about a, a habitual longing to be nourished by the power of the Scripture. As you long for the pure spiritual milk. There's a hymn written by a guy named William Williams who was a Welch guy and was one of the leaders of the church during his day with a guy named Hal Harris and Daniel Rowland, three godly guys. But it goes like this. Guide me, O thou great Jehovah, pilgrim through this barren land. I am weak, but thou art mighty. Hold me with thy powerful hand. Bread of heaven, feed me till I want no more. Bread of heaven. He says, I come to the Bible to be corrected and changed and warned and built up and strengthened and encouraged, but, but take it and apply it. I'm with people who want to do this. Or a hymn, modern day hymn. It says, Speak, O Lord, as we come to you to receive the food of your holy word. Take your truth, plant it deep in us shape and fashion us in your likeness, that the light of Christ may be seen today in our acts of love and our deeds of faith. Speak, O Lord, and fulfill in us all your purposes for your glory. Speak to us, Lord. So we, we come to, to the Scripture. So my question is, are you tasting, church, are you, are you tasting the goodness of the Lord, the benevolence of the Lord? Are you tasting that the living God is for us, that he wants to shape and fashion and change us. Jeremiah, for example, was a prophet of doom. God says, speak, Jeremiah. They're not going to listen to you, but speak, preach. So he's this prophet of doom, and he's saying, you've departed from God, and you've turned away. And the question is, how, how, how did Jeremiah stay strong to his calling? Jeremiah 15, 16 says this. Your word was found, and I ate it. And your word became a joy and the delight of my heart. You take the Scripture, you eat it. You consume it. It guides you. In the New Testament, Jesus turns to some people who just trusted in him. He says in John chapter 8, If you continue in my words, then you will truly be my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Have you tasted the goodness of the Lord? Are you craving the pure spiritual milk as you taste? Second Timothy, Paul is writing his last book of the, that he wrote, and he says in chapter 3, he says, while evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise, prudent for salvation. Through faith in Christ, all Scripture is given inspiration of God so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So, so, so it, it makes you wise. We've tasted the goodness of the Lord. We long for the pure milk of the Word. It makes us wise. I was reading recently about 
The first American received the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1930, a man named Sinclair Lewis. Sinclair Lewis was raised in Minnesota, and as he grew older, he became more and more critical of America and middle America and middle America values. He called them small town thinking and small town values. Uh, his life was a train wreck. He died in his mid-60s of alcoholism in Rome. He went through two or three marriages, but uh, his, his, his marriages ended. He had children and grandchildren. None of them did well. It's a train wreck. So I, I, I look at this. It says, deceiving and being deceived. And I said, you know, you just look at, look at the wreckage of history. The people who do their own thing apart from the reality of the Lord, it, doesn't, it usually doesn't go well. I've been around. I'm telling you, it doesn't go well. There is, um, there's, I'm reading this book. It's a little bit called Monk Habits for Everyday Life. It's interesting. It talks about adopting some of the habits of the monastery. But he, this is a, an evangelical. He says, he says this. One of the, I was preaching in a wealthy church outside of Chicago. One of the parishioners had attempted suicide. She failed. But the Saturday morning incident made big news at the church the next day. And her husband asked to meet with me the following day. As we talked over lunch, the story unraveled. His wife had been having an affair. Her husband had had numerous affairs. And this suicide attempt was her complicated way of confessing her sin and expressing shame. As David put it, not his real name, he was immersed in a deep mire. Bracket, he used a more graphic word. Their marriage was never restored. And after many doses of counseling and years of prescription drugs, David was able to remarry. But I remember returning to my office that day after we met for lunch thinking, quote, to this culture, faithful monogamy, being married to one person for life, may look boring but it sure beats what David is experiencing, close quote. I said, amen. Now, in Greek mythology, okay, mythology, so you hear that. There's something called the Procrustean bed. There's a guy named Procrustus who was a highway brigand robber. And Procrustus would kidnap people and bring them into his house and put them on his bed, and if they were too tall for the bed, he would cut off part of their legs. Again, it's a myth, okay? Don't get too upset. If they were too short for the bed, he would rash, you know, put them on a device and make their body longer so that everyone would have the same height. Now, and it's called the Procrustean bed. And really the whole argument about the Procrustean bed is observable data. It's a pragmatic argument. Does it work? And what I'm saying is, is as, I, as I look at life, pragmatically speaking, people who have a place to stand and who taste the goodness of Christ and who walk in the reality of Christ, it goes well with them. They have a future and a hope that Jeremiah speaks of in the midst of judgment. Jeremiah 29, it, it, it goes well. Here it says, it will make you wise unto salvation. I want it to go well for you. I want it to go well for me. I recently was reading some material in reference to somebody named Gene Harlow. 
I thought, I've heard that name, but I'm not sure. So I did some research. Jean Harlow was the blonde bombshell of the 1930s. Uh, she was born to a dentist and his, uh, his wife, but the mother became extremely possessive from day one and really left her husband to devote all of her energy to Jean Harlow. She called Jean Harlow baby or the one, okay, the one. Now, if you're, if you're going to have, ready to have a baby, don't refer to your child as the one. Call them Ralph or Junior or something, but don't, not the one because they may grow up with a little bit of a superiority complex. And so the mother decided she wanted to be a famous actress, so she moved to Hollywood. She was a very attractive woman. She got there. She was 34. She had this little girl in tow, and they said, you're way too old to be an actress in Hollywood today. And so she did the next best thing. She introduced her daughter to modeling and to acting classes, and sure enough, Jean Harlow became the blonde bombshell. She died in the 30s at the age of 26 of kidney failure. By the age of 26, she had been through three, she'd been married and divorced three times. The man she was living with when she died was twice her age. Her life was a train wreck at 26. Now, and I'm t- I, just, I just read that and I go, good, good grief. So you, you, sometimes just step back and think. Well, I, th- I, thought of, I thought of somebody in our day, Angelina Jolie is an incredibly gifted, attractive woman, and I think she has a real heart for people that are, that are hurting, and I, 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 there's a lot I, I, I admire about her. But when you read a brief synopsis of her life, she's here today and there tomorrow and here today and there tomorrow, and she's just, just really, at times, bizarre behavior, whether it's Brad Pitt or anybody else. Didn't she marry Billy Ray Thornton? Is that, did she marry him? Billy Ray, is that right? I think so. Why? I don't know, but she did. Anyway, so, so she's here. And you, you step back and you go, she has no place to stand. We do. And as we stand, church, it goes well with us. So let me, are you tasting the goodness of the Lord? And as you taste, is it compelling you to, to, to love and, and to get rid of certain attitudes? So are you tasting in such a fashion that you see the sin and the brokenness of our life and our culture? Peter's getting ready to say to this, in this epistle, he says, says, you live, he says, church, you live in a broken culture that needs the gospel of grace. He's getting ready to say, he says, this culture is, is, is astounded that you don't plunge with them in the same flood of sexual dissipation, chapter 4, verse 4. He's getting ready to say in chapter 3, husbands, don't you dare use your physical strength to browbeat your wives, and don't you dare use your, 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 your manhood to be, to, to, to be someone who has a live-in girlfriend, which they did. But you treat your wife with honor as the physically weaker partner, as a co-heir of the grace of God. Don't you ever use your strength to browbeat or to in any way diminish the worth of your wife, which is an astounding statement in that culture. Mind-boggling. He's getting ready to say, when, you, when you're slandered, and you're going to be slandered, don't slander back. He's getting ready to say in chapter 4, verse 12, you're going into fiery trials. He's getting ready to tell them with, with unequivocal conviction and clarity, the devil prayers, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking to devour those whom he may. Look at the brokenness of your culture and grief and hunger to be different. 
I had a, the opportunity this week of speaking to a group of young men, young pastors. And, uh, I, I told them, I said, I, I don't want to be, I don't want to be uh, negative, but I said, I, I believe today the, 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 the culture you're walking into and you're growing up in, I think it's more difficult today to speak the things of God than in any time in my life. It's very difficult. Um, I said, unless God comes in a sweeping movement called revival, it's not going to get much better. And then I said, I'm, I'm going to give you three quick statistics. I said, I, I can give you 15, I'm going to give you three. And one I mentioned last week here. So the Center for Disease Control tells us between 1991 and 2015, 400,000 Americans died of opioid or heroin overdose. And the Center for Disease Control says, and we think that is egregiously understating the problem. And I said, so you have that, but you have the ancillary problem of, of shattered families and children with no, uh, without a parent or parents and on and on and on. I said, I just went to my home in North Carolina, a small community where I grew up, and there's a book by a guy named Charles Murray about the demise of white America. And Charles Murray says, if you want to see the advent of the opioid epidemic and economic disparity, go to Wilkesboro, North Carolina, 23 miles from my front door. I see it in my little community where my brother still lives. Hopelessness, broken homes, shattered marriages, it's everywhere. That's one. I said, the other, the other stat I'll give you, I said, I, I tell this to our men at Man to Man at least once a month because I want them to get it because we want to see mature masculinity that's benevolent and loving and responsible in the name of Christ. I said, this one statistic tells us that we have a train wreck in our culture. One, one statistic. Out of, out of wedlock births. If you got 50 sociologists church in the same room and 45 of them were incredibly off-the-wall liberal and there were two conservatives and three didn't know where they stood, everyone, everyone with a unified voice would say every study tells us that if a child has a mom and a dad in the home, they're going to be better in their academics. They're going to be less likely to be incarcerated. It's going to go well with them. We all believe in the importance of having a mom and dad in the home, if at all possible. I said, for example, in 1964, this is heartbreaking, 5% of all whites were born out of wedlock before Roe v. Wade, and we were aborting 1.5 to 2 million babies a year. So 5%, 2015, 29%. Almost 600% increase. Hispanics, 1964, 12% born out of wedlock. Today, 53%. African-American community. 1964, 24%. Today, 71%. I mean, th th this is a train wreck. And I'm telling you, we, we need to taste the goodness of the Lord in such a way that we enter into and love our culture. And I said, the third thing is from this magazine. This is a, a journal. I get this. It's called First Things. It's a good journal. I agree with that with 80% of what they say. There's an article here by a woman named Mary Eberstadt, who I really like. She was mentored and taught by a woman named Jean Kirkpatrick, who was our ambassador to the UN under President Reagan, a wonderful woman. But this is why she says, just listen to it, it's two paragraphs, but this is about the LGBTQ movement. 
She says, social conservatives have been calling attention for years now to a problem that others profess not to see, the sexual disorder that disfigures the public square. Once upon a time, people who didn't want to be part of this disorder could just opt out. Today, thanks to the increasingly hysterical demands of a progressivism enthralled to the sexual revolution, that option is no more. You've got to join in, we're being told. The flight from biological science, the unhinged insistence that denies any DNA test, that there is no such thing as male or female, is increasingly written into regulations and law. It exacts consequences that no one even a few years ago saw coming. Employment penalties, the intrusion of biological males into traditionally private female spaces, and an immense pressure for social conformity and forced participation in delusion. This is good stuff. If even the plainest scientific facts are in public dispute, and if citizens can be punished for merely speaking the truth, how are we to ever judge any question in the public sphere? I went, amen. I said, we're living in a time when, when, when a radical statement is to say, Gender is part of the goodness of God's creation, which is our confessional statement. God made us male and female. We're glad for that. And so, so I'm, I'm saying it's, it's, it's a difficult place. So not only the brokenness of the culture, First Peter, but my brokenness, your brokenness. I hate to say this, but I live in Romans 7 so often and not Romans 8. Romans 8 talks about the glory of sins forgiven, the glory of Christ. But Romans 7 says, Paul says, some of the bad things I don't want to do, I do. And many of the good things I want to do, I do not do. God help me, who will deliver me from this body of death? So what I'm saying is that we've got to taste and see the goodness of the Lord in such a fashion that we long for the pure milk of the Word, in such a fashion that, that, that we get rid of certain things, that we grieve for our culture, that we grieve for our sin, and we run to the cross. Now hear me. If we merely become people who strip off things and we make a, a, a blue book of rules this thick, and, and we kind of mention Jesus occasionally, we'll be no, more, no, no better than anybody else. What I'm saying is we are enthralled with the greatness of Christ, we rejoice in the forgiveness of sins. We see the mercy poured out for us, and we in turn earnestly love, and we in turn strip off these things because it keeps us from being useful and passionate and loving and kind to those around us. So I've got to run to the goodness of the cross. Therefore, I will take the gospel to the neighborhoods and the nations. Now this week, this Tuesday, uh, we're going to have a day of prayer and fasting. So you don't eat till. You eat Monday night and don't eat again until Tuesday night. And we come here for prayer at 6.30. Uh, I wish we had hundreds to come for prayer. Because fasting is a statement, a cry from my heart, that God, apart from you, we can't do it. God, we, we believe that the gaze and the mercy of God is attracted to people who seek God with their heart. Hebrews 11, without faith it's impossible to please him. For everyone who would draw near to God must believe that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. That's it. So we're saying, Lord, we, we want to seek you. And we need the empowering presence of the Spirit 
in our church, in our nation. We need it. Use me. So, so the second part of this text is as you taste and see the goodness of the Lord, then you become convinced of this. As you come to him, verse 4, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to offer a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So, so, so as we continue to come to Him and we taste His goodness and His kindness, and as we long for the pure milk of the Word that nourishes us, we come away with this conviction. I am a living stone. Christ forerunner, like a living stone. I am like Christ. I am a living stone. And the Lord wants to use me in conjunction with other people to build a beautiful mosaic, a building that will offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God in the name of Jesus. If you're a believer, listen, you're a living stone. Living. Changing. Going forward. Metamorphosized. You're, just, you're, you're going. You're, you're, you're a, a living stone. All too often, me and other people, I'm a stone. I'm just there. I'm not changing. I'm not moving. I'm not going forward with the gospel. I'm just a stone. Living stone. Hear that? Living stone. I pray this morning. We had a group of us get together and we pray Sunday morning. And my prayer was, Lord, do not let us. Leave this Lord's Day, September the 29th, 2019, like we were when we hit it. May, may, may the worship, the singing, the word compel me to be different. You are a living stone. You're to serve and care, love, speak the name of Christ. Repent of sins. Rearrange your heart and your life. You're to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Living stone. So this word living, this, this word spiritual sacrifices is used in the Bible several places. Let me just mention four. Romans 12, verse 1. Paul says, I beseech you by the mercies of God to offer up your body as a living sacrifice. Hear that? Living sacrifice. God says, give your body as a living sacrifice. Living sacrifice. You've bought the price, 1 Corinthians 6, glorify God with your body. The book of Philippians chapter 4 talks about a spiritual sacrifice. Verse 18. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a spiritual sacrifice, acceptable and pleasing to God. You said you gave your money. You, 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 you give of your, your money. You, you're, you say, this belongs to the Lord. Church, we're living, we're living stones. 
Hebrews 13, this word is used twice in two verses. He says this, first of all, in verse 14, 15. For, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come through him. Then let us continually offer up a spiritual sacrifice of praise to God that is the first, that is the fruit of the lips that acknowledge his name. So you say, well, what does that mean? Well, let us continually offer a spiritual sacrifice. I, in other words, from day to day, we honor Christ with our lips. Boy, the Lord is good. The Lord is good. I, I even think, well, the, the Lord is good. I, I think it could mean be, be a singer, to be honest with you. I, I, I wish we sang more, not just on Sunday. I wish we were more given to singing, to honoring the Lord with our lips. You're, listen, you're, you're a living stone. Now, living stones care about other people. Living stones care about service. Living stones care about nurturing the next generation, our children. Serving in the nursery, kids' church. Loving people. I, 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 you're living stones. Not just stones. Living stones. And then he says, uh, spiritual sacrifices, sharing your possession. Verse 16 uh, says this, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such spiritual sacrifices are pleasing to God. See, people who have tasted the goodness of the Lord and who walk in the presence of Christ and who are nourished by the Word of God give. They're, they're givers. They're not consumed with themselves. They, 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 they care about other people. They care about the Great Commission. They care about the gospel going out. So, are you tasting the goodness of the Lord? And as, are you tasting the goodness of the Lord because the Scripture is nourishing your soul like, like milk nourishes a newborn baby? And, and as you are nourished by the Word, and as you see the kindness of the Lord, are you getting rid of certain things, and are you understanding that, listen, you're a living stone to be used of God to extend His kingdom and to bless communities, your neighborhoods, the nations, your office, your family. Church, be a living stone to the glory of God's name. Well, let's, let's pray. Uh, Lord, we are, uh, we take this Scripture and it is absolutely beautiful uh, that, that we are to be people who taste the goodness of the Lord. And as we taste the goodness of the Lord, that we're serious about sin and getting rid of certain things that left unchecked will destroy us and limit our usefulness and hurt our relationships. So, so we, we want to do that. And as we taste the goodness of the Lord and as we're nourished by the Word of God, uh, we understand that we're living stones. Living stones, not just a stone, but stones that are changing and moving and being convicted and encouraged and built up and 
chastised by the Word of God. And, and as we do that, Lord, and as we respond to the Scriptures, we'll walk together and we will, with our brothers and sisters, build a beautiful house of worship in the name of the living God to the glory of the name of Jesus. So as living stones, let us go forward this week. As living stones, let us love people. As living stones, let us communicate the gospel to the three people we're praying for. As living stones, let us be the people who called us to be. Speak, O Lord, to us in Jesus' name. Amen.